1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and the mag is better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. With all that said, let's get on with that show, shall we? Mm. Hi. My name is Stephen King. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Today's guest is a screenwriter, producer, and all-around badass who's responsible for one of the most entertaining horror movies of the past few years. Formerly a producer on Netflix's Luke Cage and a current producer of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, she is the screenwriter of James Wan's absolutely bonkers malignant, Gabriel Hive Activate, and will be flexing what we assume will be similar muscles on next year's Megan. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Ms. Akela Cooper. Akela, how are you doing today? I am great. How are y'all? Living the dream. We we just spent like about a month straight recording our uh, oh, wow. anniversary special, which aired the week before this episode aired. And, oh, well, uh, happy anniversary. Well, oh, thank, thank you. you. Uh, it uh, beat the living shit out of us, but uh, <laughs> we got it all done. It had like 20 guests, so there was a lot of like wrangling that had to take Oh, place. man. But we're through it. We're facing down a great big long weekend right now. Um, I could not be more excited. So you're you're getting you're getting us in the best possible mood. <laughs> so yeah. um, I would like to start by talking to you a little bit about malignant, and I've got a, a little anecdote I want to uh, share with you up front. Okay. Okay. So um, you know we're part of the Fangoria family, and uh, the editor in chief over at Fangoria Magazine, Mister Phil Nabil Jr had seen Malignant before I had seen it, right? Mm-hmm. And he went on and on about it. Loved it. Well, when it finally came out and I could watch it, I started watching it and I was like, you know, um, right off the bat, I was like, you know, the hospital, the all this, all this stuff in that opening like 10 minute sequence or so. I was like, this is very the dark half. And I started getting suspicious. And I was uh-huh. like, Phil, have you seen the dark half? And he's like, yeah. I was like, I don't know. This seems very dark halfish. He was like, just shut the fuck up and stick with it. Like, trust me on this. And like, as it went on, I realized it was playing a completely different game. And by the end, I had to go back to film and say, you were right. That was amazing. Uh, <laughs> like, they well, no, really were... swung for the fences on this one. And you he said, correct. he said, uh, it's the singer, not the song, which is a very, very wise thing, I believe. Okay, when you when you all sat down to to figure this thing out, did you know you wanted it to just ramp up slowly, like throughout the thing until it's just completely gonzo at the end? Yes. Uh, when I met with James Wan and uh, Ingrid Bisu, they already had like 
the bones of mm-hmm. the film in mind. And they knew they wanted act three to be like this balls out bonkers reveal uh, and death fest. I was like, okay. And I actually had uh, like some personal experience tangentially by proxy with uh, teratomas uh, because one of my good buddies actually had one when she was a teenager, they found out that like she had absorbed her twin uh, in utero. And then when she went through puberty, it just started growing again. Cause it was sucking all like the, the, the blood and the hormones and all that stuff. What? So it was, yeah, it was feeding off of her puberty. Dude. <laughs> and uh, she had to have it removed and it had like hair and teeth and, and all of that. So no. when Ingrid, yeah, when Ingrid brought it up, I'm like, Oh yeah, I know what that is. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, no, I had a friend who like, you know, went through this. And so they were just like, Oh my God. Cause they were used to having to explain it to people. I'm like, Nope, I get it. Uh, and so they gave me the treatment and I read it. I'm like, oh yeah, I can totally do this. And so I took that like treatment and then I fleshed it out, uh, fleshed out the cop characters and the story of the sisters and, and all of that. And then brought it back to James. And he was like, great, uh, go off to script and write this. And uh, I was saying, sorry to interrupt you. It was like one of the things I was like, you were correct about the dark half because when James pitched me like the tone and what he was looking for his comps were the dark half meets the eyes of Laura Mars oh um, man <laughs> that's cool and so I'd seen the dark half like in the early 90s like I'd, I'd seen it and so I was kind of familiar with it but I had to like go back and rewatch it and I'd never seen the eyes of Laura Mars uh, mm. so I had to watch that and I was just like okay this is an interesting combo I get what he's going for uh, and then, yeah, I, I wrote that first draft and sent it to uh, the guys at Atomic Monster, including James and Ingrid, uh, got notes back um, from James and, uh, you know, did another pass. And one of the things that he also said he wanted was uh, in the uh, Kakoa Gabriel Chase scene, he was like, it's got to be like seven. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, part of my job is now going back and watching Seven, which I'm not going to complain about. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I also, it's like, I watched Seven and then I found the script for Seven. And he's like, how did they describe what he wants to see? Uh, and so it was like pulling from those sources and then turned the draft over to James. James took it. He did his pass. Uh, he also brought on another writer, JT Petty, uh, who's really cool to do like a humor pass to like up the humor in the script and also some other stuff. And yeah, then they shot it. Uh, I got to visit set uh, twice and it was the asylum stuff. So uh, it was oh. like the asylum um, uh, and then the uh, the prison scene. So I was there. For, you were there uh, for the big one. The big yeah, one. I was there for the big reveal, which was <laughs> like a great night to just like get to hang out on set and watch James like work his magic. Uh, and I also got to meet Zoe Bell, which was really cool because mm-hmm. I was just like, wait, she's in this? Awesome. So yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and and then it came out, and uh, they had done some reshoots. So I got to see it first at Beyond Fest mm. uh, with an audience who had no idea what they were really about to watch, and so I was in some spots kind of as surprised as the audience, like when uh, uh, the Sydney has to like pull up to the mental institution, and then it's like she just parks at the edge of a cliff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna. Like, there were two key moments in the film that I wanted to ask, like, how were they described in the script? And one of them was the car thing. So oh, that wasn't de- that wasn't determined by the script. That's a no. That was James. Like, I had her <laughs> pulling up to the front, and I described it as like it's long, abandoned. There's a fence that she had to like cut, you know, <laughs> through. It was just like it was a derelict 
uh, uh, <laughs> mental, like not mental hospital, but like medical hospital. And then I'm watching it with the audience and she pulls up to this cliff side. I'm like, what? Oh, James. Okay. <laughs> Tells you everything you need to know right in that it moment. Is. And I yeah. was like, oh, that this is... goes up to the line. That's the, that's the point. Pretty much. I'm like, oh, this is James teaching the audience what kind of movie they're watching. Because later on when you have, um, uh, Madison telling Sydney that she's adopted and you got that, <laughs> yes. that push in people are like, what's going on? I was like, but no, you guys, the cliff should have told you. <laughs> uh, which I, was also an interesting choice by James because in, in my first two drafts, Sydney already knew that her sister was adopted. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So he, he wanted to save that for that moment and that shot specifically, I guess. Interesting. Good call, though. The other moment was the uh, the chair throwing. Uh, <laughs> that was, was also the, James. Was the, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I, was the term WWE in the script? or <laughs> It was not. Um, <laughs> I believe I described, because I knew for that, I was like, James is going to take this and he's going to do <laughs> what he's going to do. So I just have her, uh, as soon as Gabriel has revealed himself to the other inmates in the cell, uh, I basically wrote like she attacks uh, uh, the alpha inmate and then all hell breaks loose and it just becomes a hurricane of blood and gore. Mm. That's great. Cause then he right. just as a writer, that's amazing. Cause you can be like, yes, now it's your job to do this. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I was like, I will I can- give you what you need knowing you're going to turn this up to 11. <laughs> I'm just I mean, a weatherman here. Forecast calls for a hurricane of blood. Right. Uh, go ahead and make it happen. God. Well, that's also like it just on a craft level, you know, there's there's always that discussion of, you know, how much should a writer direct on the page? And then when you're talking about an action scene, you either you don't have a middle ground, right? It's either going to be here's a beat by beat of what happens or it's going to be here's a paragraph describing the feeling of this fight. Now it's up to you guys to, you know, whoever's making this thing to figure it out. That's usually how I do it. It's like I haven't directed anything yet. Um, but knowing that it's going to go to like other talented people to make it work, I will, it's like, yes, this is what should be happening. Sometimes I'll be specific. Like I want this character to like, basically like gut this other character right? and, uh, I'll describe that. And then like, cause I wrote a pilot recently where it's like, yes, like this character attacks the other character. She takes a knife and like basically stabs him from like throat to, to abdomen <laughs> guts spill all over the floor. And then these other two monsters attack and I'm just, and I literally just wrote, it's a brutal bloody fight and we see as much as standards and practices will allow. So (laughs) like, that's what, and I was like, the director will take this and choreograph it and the stunt team will choreograph it and they'll have fun. And, you know, usually, you know, I've, I've never worked with a bad crew. Uh, So I tend to like trust crews uh, and, and the production office implicitly was like, you guys are going to give me something cool. Um, Mm. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's usually like unless I know there's something specific that I want to see, I'll usually just be like, this is what the action needs to be, which is bloody or it's brutal. It's unforgiving or it's like or I'll pick comps in like another movie. Like uh, it's like it's like the kitchen fight in Kill Bill, you know, Mm. like that's what this should feel like. I I can't say enough good things about it. I've I've watched that movie. I I, in fact, I was going to rewatch Graveyard Shift before we recorded this today. And then I was like. You know what? I've seen that somewhat <laughs> recently. I'm going to watch Malignant instead. <laughs> and I fucking threw it on this morning. Uh, well, Still the 4K bangs. comes out at some point, I think. Yeah, next week. Next week, uh, yeah. Everyone was very quick to point that out to me. Because I was watching it on 
HBO Max, and I tweeted about it, and several people popped up to helpfully let me know that that was the case. Um, and James Wan is, I just want to say, one of the nicest guys in this oh, yeah. business. That's That was my experience. I assume it was yours. You sound very fond of him. Oh, yeah. No, incredibly. And it's just like, it's great to like watch and learn from him. And again, it's like when you talk about describing action, I'm like, it's James Wan. Like <laughs> the man knows what he's doing. I really don't worry have about to that. like, yeah, yeah, put too much on the page for James because like more than likely he already knows what he wants to do. Uh, so I just made like those scenes fun for myself to write. Um, yeah. yeah. But no, James, James is incredible. Uh, he's incredibly sweet and nice and talented. And yeah, not enough good things to say about him. Well, you did spectacular work, and I, I cannot wait to see your talents brought to bear on Megan. Ah. Um, we'll talk about that one maybe a little bit more at the uh, yeah. end of the show. For now, let's let's move into, uh, you know, the big question. What is, uh, what is your Stephen King origin story? Okay, so I'm of that generation where in summers uh, watching TV, we had what was called the midday movie. Like usually on your local, you know, whatever station uh, syndication. And so one day I caught, I think, like the tail end of this movie about a guy who was really in love with his car and his car was killing people and the music was kind of cool. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is nice. And then a couple oh. of days later, they played it again. And this time I got to catch it from the beginning. And it was a movie called Christine. Mm -hmm. And I was watching the credits. And I saw that's like based on a book by Stephen King. And I was like, huh, I like reading. And I was like, I was also at that age where like movie uh, book adaptations of movies were a huge thing. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think they do that really anymore. But I was always like, I like that movie. Now I'll read the book. Mm. Uh, and so I was like, oh, this is this is based on a book. So I need to find <laughs> it's like that, that except the other way. around. Yeah, this is like the other way around. It's like, OK, so Stephen King, that's simple to remember. So when my parents, uh, I don't remember how late, much later it was, but we went to the bookstore and I had my list and it's Stephen King's Christine uh, went to the horror section and found it and bought it with my hard earned money. And you were what age at this time? Oh, this was probably 91, 92. Oh, so right I was on. probably like 10 or 11. Oh, we're all the same age then. Yeah, like 10 or, or 11. close to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I read Christine and I liked it. I enjoyed it. I was like, okay, so I like this author. I'm going to read more from this author. Because I, I grew up with parents who loved to read. Uh, my parents were voracious readers and they passed yeah. that on to me. So like I would read whatever I could get my hands on. And uh, I was also proud of myself that I was like, I am reading adult books. Were they King readers? Uh, no, no, they weren't. Like my dad was into more like hardcore fantasy. Like my dad is like Conan the Barbarian. Mm, like that yes. was like Robert E. Uh, Howard. Stuff, yeah, Robert yeah. E. Howard and all of that stuff is like what he loved. And my mother was a little bit more varied. Like she like Lonesome Dove and Shogun. Like those are the kind mm. of books and stuff that like she liked to read. She's also like heavily into John Grisham when he became popular. Um, yeah, like she's she sounds really like my, gran thrills. my grandparents. She has the taste <laughs> of my grandparents. But, oh wow, yeah. she'll love to hear that. Yeah, like you, you pass that along for me. I'm sure she'll 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 appreciate that. <laughs> you had the taste of grandparents when you were in your late 30s. Congratulations. <laughs> it reminds um, me of my mom. Like there was no bigger <laughs> event in my mother's life, perhaps, than the release of the Da Vinci Code. Like that was the oh yeah, 
that was the sort of like that kind of that kind of beach reading stuff, I think, or like what I think of as airport books. Yes, airport um, books. She was she read a lot, but uh, I think had a particular taste for that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. The next time we went back to the bookstore, I went back to the horror section. I was like, OK, what else do they have from Stephen King? And uh, they had my favorite Stephen King book, even though I know he hates this Pet Cemetery. Mm. Um, and I, I bought that one. And then I also saw that he had, you know, the short story collection. So I would just like slowly but surely I could usually afford only like a book at a time because I had right. like, you know, like 10 bucks on me um, and just slowly building up that collection. But then there was one point in time. And I'm just going to like, it was on beta because this was like, <laughs> even though we moved to a VCR, we still had our beta machine. Uh, I realized that one of my dad's actual favorite horror movies um, was also a Stephen King novella, which was Silver Bullet. And like, yes. I'd grown up seeing that, but like, and I'd seen Silver Bullet before Christine, actually, I just never put it together that that was the same author until we were watching right. Silver Bullet one day and again, caught the opening credits. And I was like, oh, wait, it's, it's, this is Stephen King? There's a book about this? Awesome. And so that was one of the books that I had to like special order from the bookstore because uh, they didn't have it in stock. And like, I still have my copy, um, which for this podcast, I called my mom and I was like, I need you to send me all of my Stephen King books <laughs> from did you Missouri. Know, did you know that Cycle of the Werewolf started off as a calendar? I did not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was, wow. um, it was, it, you know, it was going to do the same thing that the book did, but you know, each, uh, each image on, on for each month was going to be a Ber uh, different Bernie Wrightson illustration. And then, oh. At the there'd be like text accompanying it, like a little, you know, a paragraph or two, basically. Um, and it would just go through that whole year in the life of the werewolf. And Stephen King got to writing it and was like, you know, I could expand this a little bit. And so then it turned into that book. Yeah, but yeah, the, the pitch was that it was going to be like kind of a Friday the 13th, where it's like every month has a full moon. So every you know, in February, there'll be the Valentine's one murder, you oh. know, and, and there'll be the 4th of July murder and the Thanksgiving and Halloween murder and all that stuff. Uh, and if you go back and reread Cycle of the Werewolf, it's really funny if you have that in mind, because the first like three or four chapters are like a page, right? Mm -hmm. They're really short. And it's just like, here's the gruesome kill that happened on, you know, on, in January, the gruesome kill that happened in February. And then as they're going along, suddenly they become two or three pages, four, five, six, seven, eight pages per, per thing. Mm. And that's just King like actually going, I can't do this. I have, have to write a story about it because they don't introduce uh, Marty Kozlaw until like the middle of the, the yeah, thing. It's not what, until once like he has a main July. character. Yeah. yeah. Once they have a main character, then he becomes the, you know, it becomes more of a traditional King story. So it's, it's one of the more fascinating of the, the shorter King works. Yeah. It's, it's become one of my favorite. I love that movie too. No, yeah, Uncle Red can't beat Uncle Red. You cannot, because I also kind of had like an uncle, like Uncle Red, who was like just horribly inappropriate. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let's let's follow this down for a second. <laughs> like, what what were some of the adventures that you had with your Uncle Red? Oh, it was like, hey, you want to sip a beer? Yes, I, I would like to try this. <laughs> and also, just like inappropriate jokes. Mm -hmm. I remember there right. was one point, like, he told me, like, this inappropriate, like, he was visiting us in our house, and, like, we were in the kitchen, and my mom was in the laundry room, which is, like, right around the corner, and he's just, like, telling me this this inappropriate joke, and my mom was like, I don't think I've ever seen her move so fast to, like, 
<laughs> stop him. Like he, he'd already gotten to the punchline, which was filthy. And I was just like laughing. And it's just like, nope, nope. You stop. <laughs> Kayla, go upstairs. Do you remember the joke? I think it was like little miss. It was like little miss Muffet. And he was like, why did she actually run away? And it was like, cause the spider just like said something filthy. Oh, like, oh okay. <laughs> so it wasn't a good joke. It's just a filthy joke. Yeah, no, it wasn't a good, it was like, yeah. And it just yeah. had curse words. Um, yeah, I think he was just like, little Miss Mother Santa Artovis, like spider comes down. He's like, what's in the bowl, bitch? And it's just like. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. I got it. I take it back. I take it back. Yeah. Uh, so that was, and I was like, that makes no sense, but you just said a dirty word. Which I wasn't even, it's like. I wasn't even that unfamiliar with like cursing. Like uh-huh. I, I right. grew up around black men. So like, if you've seen a Bernie <laughs> Mac special, like you pretty much, <laughs> um, you know, you're familiar with how they talk, mm. but yeah, it's like, I guess, yeah. My mom was just like, Nope, Nope, not you, not this, not her. I think yeah. it's really important for, for kids to have that, <clears throat> that, that kind of, I don't know, the non-responsible adult in their life. Yeah. The person yeah. who's not the parent or the authority figure for them. Uh, and that's something that just does, I guess, isn't really talked about all that much. But may, I think that's why I love Uncle Red so much, you know, that it's, uh, you know, and having those kind of figures and why I would I'm trying to emulate the maybe not the insanity of Uncle Red, but the the spirit of, of mm-hmm. abuse with my own relationship with my nephews. You know, it's <laughs> like I, I, I want to be the the person that they can just hang out with and have fun with. And uh, I mean, obviously, if you're the adult yeah. supervising children, you at some point you got to be the, the authoritarian or else, you know they're going to run out in the street and get hit by a car or whatever. But, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, the, but the, I think, I feel like that that's more, that that's a really interesting, uh, family dynamic that isn't, uh, talked about nearly as much as it maybe should be. No. And also it's like my uncle, he owned his own trucking company. Um, and so he also brought us fireworks cause he was like traveling. <laughs> oh, hell yes. That yeah. is really were uncle red. The yeah. yeah. That is uncle red fucking, behavior. Oh sure. yeah. The only thing he didn't do was build you a, a, a rocket powered uh, wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess my final question during this, this uh, segment that we're on is you must've been of the right age to watch. If, if you were uh, allowed to the, the it miniseries when it originally yes. aired. Right. Yeah. Uh, did you, I did. I watched it up until a certain point. I think it's probably the scene where uh, Pennywise comes out of the shower in the boys' locker room. Yes. I just remember that, like, freaking me out. And so, like, to kind of compress the stories, like, my father uh, got a job uh, working in Atlanta, and then my mom couldn't find a job uh, in Atlanta. So my parents were, like, they weren't, like, separated because they hated each other. They were separated because of work for about a year. And so we would travel to, like – like I stayed with my mom and we would go visit my dad in Atlanta a couple of times a year. And right around the time the it, uh, miniseries came out, my mom went to bed and left me to watch it myself. Cause she had to get up early in the morning and drive. And I chickened out after the shower scene. And so the next day as we're driving to Atlanta, my mom was like, okay, so tell me what happened in the miniseries. And I like, I'm telling her the story up until the shower thing. And then I was like, I didn't want to admit that I chickened out. And, and went to bed and didn't finish it. So I just started riffing. I just started <laughs> making stuff up, which I recognize now is like my first kind of like, it's like not my first, but like one of my big forays into storytelling. And <laughs> yeah, this like, is your writer <laughs> origin story as well. Yeah. yeah, it was just like, yeah. And then this happened and then this happened and then that happened. Uh, yeah, and it was really, really scary. And my mom was interested in the entire time. I, I need to ask her, I was like, I don't know if she knew I was lying. 
and didn't care because she just needed to be entertained while she was driving. But yeah, it's like I spent like an hour basically making up the back half of episode one of the It uh, It miniseries. (laughs) That was, you know, that Pennywise fights Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Where did he come from? It's like, I don't remember. I didn't think Godzilla was going to be in it. (laughs) The uh, it's, I asked, I I asked about the miniseries in particular because that was sort of a flashpoint for uh, people of our generation. Yeah. You know, I remember when that aired, you know, being scared shitless by it, but but not being able to look away. And I remember talking about it with everyone at school the next day. You know, it was just like, you know, that was a, that was a huge moment. Yeah. Um, It was so scary. But then it's like, we were in, we were in Atlanta and we watched the second episode, I believe. Yeah, with with my dad, with my parents. So I was like, thankfully, they didn't do much of a recap, <laughs> so that my mom didn't know that like I'd been lying out of my ass. But yeah, I remember watching the second half with my parents and, and enjoying that. Um, but yeah, no, Tim Curry, man, he just had a lock on because he was also like the voice of Smog in Fern Gully, which mm-hmm. was also kind of like freaky and, and terrifying in a weird sexual way. Yeah, it was kind of his the like the the nader of uh, the Curry. I don't know the Curry revolution. I don't know. It maybe isn't like the best era for Tim Curry. Like uh, we were talking before we started recording about how awesome legend was. And like, to me, that's kind of like Curry in a nutshell is that, mm-hmm. that character. But you know, in that early nineties period, that was like home alone two And, uh, in uh, it. And as you said, Fern Gully and like all this stuff where he was just the guy that was in, you know, everything that, that people, the tweens especially watched. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, oh, yeah. National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. Loaded oh, Weapon yeah. 1. Wilderness Girls. Oh, yeah, yes, that is what everyone remembers. Wilderness Girls. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you've, you've chosen Graveyard Shift as your, as your title for this appearance. And, um, I'm curious, well, I'm curious, uh, what caused you to pick graveyard shift and what your what your history is with this as a as a property the short story and the movie so it was between graveyard shift and and cycle of the werewolf slash silver bullet but it's like graveyard shift it's like i haven't i haven't revisited in a while and i remember enjoying it and i remember enjoying the short story and also it's just like i am i am a monster movie girl i enjoy a good monster design and i remember this graveyard shift was another uh midday movie um Mm -hmm that I got to see. And I remember the giant, I guess it's, it's a mute, it's a mutation of a rat and a bat, right? Like that's, yeah. that's what it is. Cause I went back and forth. I'm like, it's got, it's a giant bat, right? But no, it's living with rats. So why would a bat be down there? This is like, what the hell is this thing? Um, and it also had one of my favorite early scares, uh, which is when, I can't remember the character's name, but it's like the, the one of the employees who had like the the shoulder length hair. Uh, Warwick is like, we got to go. We got to get out of here. And he's like, no, no, I'm not moving. And so like he stays behind in the tunnel and it's dark. And then the camera is on him and you just kind of hear like breathing. Mm. And then he gets out his his lighter and lights it and like turns slowly to the left. And the thing is like right next to his head. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember being like, Oh shit, that's terrible. And I really, really like this. Uh, And so like, it's, it's that moment. And then also like the, um, I guess Stephen mock there's, there's so much 
scenery chewing in this between Stephen Mock and Brad Dourif. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but like Stephen Mock, when he after Warwick has lost his mind and he comes across the Rat Bat like in its full glory, and he's just like pulls out this tiny ass knife, thinking he's gonna <laughs> do something, and he was like, "You and me are going to hell." Together! <laughs> <laughs> he is gunning it in this. Yeah, he really is. But again, it's like it's those moments that stick in my head. Because like as a kid, I would just be running around, and be like, "Together!" And my parents are just like, "What?" Like, Never mind. Never I mind. Wi- I wish I had seen this as a kid. This is this is this was somehow one of. There's only a, a handful of King movies that I hadn't seen before we started the show, and this was one of them. And. I I don't know why I uh, avoided it. Uh, I it was more like I never got around to it, you know. And then when we finally did an episode on this, like last year, or the year before, um, I was blown away. I I would have loved that shit as a kid. Yeah, you know, it would have been oh man. I I I recently tried oysters for the first time just mm. last weekend. Right, same thing. I'm like I've been wasting my fucking life. These are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> They, well, you have to get good ones, though, because I remember the first time I actually tried oysters ever was at Comic-Con. Uh, okay. I can't, that's... What, what rest- <laughs> I can't remember what restaurant it is. I met friends, and they're like, we're ordering oysters. And I'm like, I am willing to try these. Like, I've uh-huh. never had them. Like, again, I grew up in Missouri, like, landlocked state. We never really had fresh seafood outside of catfish. It's like, I will try these. And they were not good. Mm. And I was just like, ugh. But then a couple of years later, I was actually uh, uh, visiting Sydney, Australia, and found this restaurant and they were like shucking fresh oysters. And I was like, okay, let me try this again. And I tried those oysters and it was like the heavens opened up. It's like, Mm. oh, this is what people are talking about. These are delicious. Yeah. I went to I went to a really good place. Um, I, I, I mean, I was always worried about the texture of them. Because yeah. I've got a weird thing about food textures. You know, I, I won't eat something if it's if it just has a weird mouthfeel. And this had been described to me as like eating a loogie. And I was like, <laughs> I don't want to know that I want to eat loogies. That sounds like maybe not a great idea. And they also just look <laughs> ugly. You know, they look like the, yeah. the predator's mouth or some shit. <laughs> so uh, I but I for whatever reason, last weekend, I got a wild hair at my ass and was like, today's the day. Let's do this shit. Yeah, they were, they were and totally, totally delightful. Although mm. I will tell you, the phrase Comic-Con oysters fills me with the sort of <laughs> dread that Lovecraft couldn't describe. That's, it was it was at a, one of those gas. It was actually a fancy gas lamp restaurant. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of fancy eateries around there. Yeah, I've been to a lot but of yeah, those I restaurants just, and they look fancy, but the food yeah. is always ah, trash. That's yeah, it was. I was just like, this is gross. But tourism I, fancy, tourist fancy. Yeah. Because I have the same thing. Like, I have that with avocado. I know fucking everyone in California loves avocados and they mm. put it on everything. And I'm like, please don't. Um, what about it guacamole? Is the texture. Yeah, it's, I, I, I'll tolerate guacamole. Mm. I will, <laughs> That's I interesting. Will, I choose salsa if there is not salsa and I have to put something on my chip. Mm hmm. I will use guacamole, but it is not my first choice. <laughs> Begrudgingly, yes. <laughs> dipping into that guac. I will, I'll, I will, I'll be this. in the room with some guac, but that's about it. <laughs> but I'm also like compensating with more chips. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, because it's like it's avocado. It's like the taste is okay, but like the texture, because it's kind of like weird and slimy to me. So you're just like, but you eat oysters. It's like I also have a thing for salt. 
I mm. was as a little kid, my parents had to get on to me about like eating too much salt because I was literally like taking a salt shaker and just like right. pouring it on my tongue. Was, like, you can't oh Jesus! Do that. Yeah. yeah, and so yeah, that I, is I like brine. Not good, right? Yeah, yeah I guess it'll I like do the it. Brine. But I, yeah, I'm gonna need to challenge Scott because he tried oysters before he tried poutine, and he oh poutine's po- good. Yeah, well, but it's the same thing because you you thing with poutine is you don't think you'll like it because it's soggy fries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna try it the next time I have a chance. The Draft House has actually I mean, got some on their uh, special you, menu you right now. Fries, if not mashed potatoes. I hear you, but I don't eat mashed potatoes with my bare what? hands. What is the thing? Yeah, with your bare hands. The, 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 well, you can the eat a fry with told a fork me to, if you want. The police and the judge told me to stop doing that. It was upsetting. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I do want to. I'm gonna try it. Uh, but yeah, it, well, my, that is, that is another, uh, texture thing. Yeah. My story with poutine is like, I was covering, uh, I was on set for my episode of the hundred and usually like at the end of an episode, writers and directors like to do nice things for the crew. So you usually like rent a coffee truck or something. Right. Um, and so all, whatever reason, all the coffee trucks were like booked and so I was like, what's the next best thing? And someone was like, oh, you could get a poutine truck. <laughs> and I had no idea. I knew that poutine was like a Canadian dish. I had no idea what it was. And I'm like, I will get the crew a poutine truck. They were very, very grateful because it was one of like the best poutine trucks in Vancouver. Mm. Uh, and I like got my first like little bowl of poutine. I'm like, oh, OK, this is fine. Yeah, you got to get legit Canadian poutine. Like, I've had the draft house. They've had poutine as a specialty on the menu. It's It's like weird fancy schmancy american version of poutine you need a down and dirty just yeah fry and brown gravy and cheese curd you know uh, poutine not not some bullshit the alamo whips up for a special thing <laughs> let's talk about brad duraf in this movie <laughs> yes uh a very particular presence leading uh, strong i like it yes mr duraf has uh kayla what are your what are your thoughts on his his uh performance here and and just in general, the, the the very singular person that is Brad Dourif. I am a fan of Brad Dourif because I love Chucky. Like Child's mm-hmm, Play is sure. one of my favorite. Also, a movie that I saw as a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I I've been a fan of his. He's like obviously great in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and just like an incredible character actor. But like with this character, it seems like everyone was just like, "We're making." I'm guessing Graveyard Shift was sh- straight to video. I don't think it went to theaters, did it? Oh, yeah, it, it, it was a theater movie. Yeah. Oh, it was in theaters. Okay. Didn't so make every, a lot of money, but yeah. Well, like, because that character is not in the short story. So this is a whole new thing that he's doing. And he just, like, takes that ball and runs with it. He's got the chew. <laughs> yeah, and he's yeah. got the Vietnam War vet story. The mm-hmm. earring. Yes, the earring, the dog, weirdly <laughs> enough. It's like, what is your dog going to do in a situation where there are hundreds of thousands of rats you already see them you don't need the dog poor dog uh he finds them but the the rats are the rats aren't hiding in the middle they're just like hanging out staring <laughs> yeah, at people that's true they're not, well, no, they're not most normal rats are hiding and so he needs a rat dog but these yes. these are more than they bargained for but like walking in the middle all these rats are like you can't do shit to us because our big brother <laughs> Is gonna that, come and fuck you up. That's one of my favorite things about the movie is like the those shots of just what appears to be hundreds of rats just yeah. you know like staring down whatever character is in the center of the room. It's it's creepy. It's creepy. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little 
it's silly, but it works. Like you, you just don't see a thing like that very often. So it's pretty unsettling. Yeah, when when wild animals start acting in unison and they're all staring at you, that is never a good thing. No. Yes, I would like back slowly out of that room. Like this is oh. y'all know something I don't, but like for yeah. Brad Dourif, like when he when he goes into the VC rat monologue, <laughs> uh-huh. like you can feel him acting. You're like, this is going to be shown at the Academy Awards. Yeah. Capital <laughs> like A acting. Yeah. Capital A oh. acting. It's like, don't you think I'm no Bruce Dern boy? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's I, the beauty when you cast somebody like Brad Dourif, though, is like, whether it's Lord of the Rings or some, you know, $100,000 cheap ass horror movie, like, he brings the same level of commitment to it. Yes. You know, it's, he's working for Milos Foreman or he's working for Uva Bowl or whatever, you know, he, yeah. he brings he brings it 100%. Um, yeah, and that's crazy, and that's, I'm really glad that you're you're here to talk about this one in particular, because there is some a discussion to be had about the adaptation process and, like, a- adapting a short film to a feature, or a short story to a feature film, and uh, the the Brad Dorf character is a prime example of things that you have to plus with it. You couldn't just tell the 20 page short story. No, you know, you'd have a, a half an hour movie. Um, uh, so maybe we could talk a little bit about that and talk about how, you know, the things that they included, the things that they didn't. Um, I, in, and uh, I want to throw my hat in to focus part of the discussion on the, the kind of ecosystem that King kind of sets up in the book that we don't really get in the movie. Uh, where there's like the armadillo versions of rats. There's the albino rats. Oh, yeah, there's like all, all these different and, kinds yeah. kinds of rats. And then this one, it's like rats and then a bat rat, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, even in the short story, it's like Warwick is eaten by the giant blind mole rat, right? Right. Like, it's at the bottom of a pit. And there are bats that attack Hall, but it's not, I, I don't remember if like the actual creature was a, a bat rat. Right. I think it's I think it's a bat, but the big rats are its cronies. And it okay. looks it looks a lot like halfway because just the features of a bat face have yeah. a little have a little little rattiness to them. Right. Every every time I see this movie, I'm like, it's a bat, isn't it? It's got bat wings, but there are rats there. Yeah, I think <laughs> that And then in the short story Stephen King talks about it's like there are mutations already happening. So it's like maybe a rat got really lonely one night and found a bat. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of things you have to hold on to and extrapolate into a feature is, is those little discussions and thoughts of, of bats and rats fucking and making hybrid creatures. Yes. I actually know the guy who has the uh, giant bat head prop from the movie. Uh, Robert Sacedo. You know that guy, Eric? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, another draft house guy. Really great. He collects stuff like that, but oh, nice. he sent pictures, I think once or twice. And it's, uh, it is an alarming visual to to <laughs> see someone you know just standing next to that horrific looking thing, and it's it's clearly seen better days. You know? It is, it's, but again, it's such it's such a good it's such a good design. Because like if you were if anyone was to remake this movie today, that would be CG. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned earlier being you know big on creature feature stuff, and I'm I'm curious like you know, and we don't have to devote a lot of time to this, but like. Uh, just off the top of your head, can you name off a few other uh, creature designs that you're particularly fond of? Just to give us context for your tastes. Pumpkinhead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good mm. one. Good one. Probably one of the greatest monster designs of the 80s. 
mm-hmm. uh, the Predator. Pretty right much, on. I am a Stan Winston fanatic. Yeah, uh, I love all of his work, and I know it's like he turned it over to Tom Woodruff Jr. and the crew for Pumpkinhead. Uh, but again, like those guys, they did an amazing fucking job. Um, obviously, the Queen Alien. Mm-hmm. in aliens and even like the original alien in hr geiger uh was really good uh i know it's kind of weird now because of the director's history but uh the creeper from jeepers creepers right yeah it's like an incredible design and like a great mythology and backstory for him um i'm glad you got the xenomorph in there because that's my <laughs> number one my, yeah. my my big complaint with like creature feature stuff these days is that the the designs just often feel so underwhelming, you know. Like oh yeah, I don't know There's what no, was it like yeah. Super Eight. When I saw Super Eight, I was like, it's just a big gray thing with a bunch they're of always arms. Big gray things. Yeah, like come on, they're man. They're hairless. They're flesh insects. It's. <laughs> 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 that's a good way to put that but he had the kind of the same design in in the original or the not the the 2009 star trek when yeah right uh kirk lands on the ice planet and there's like a flesh insect on the ice planet like they didn't yeah. evolve to have any kind of fur like a spider to help him out there's a little cloverfield in there too yeah if, yeah if you can tell honest. like he loves right. that that design yeah that's um, neville page that's uh he just d- designs all the creatures for <laughs> for jj yeah um, you go over to that dude's house and it's just filled with giant gray sculptures <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah also I mean, like anything from john carpenter's the thing which i think my favorite is mm. probably the uh open chest mouth thing oh that's yeah. a good one yeah yeah yeah, yeah the 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 uh, the Norris head that's uh, that grows the spider legs and the stalks yeah. like come out of the eye holes and shit. Yeah, that's you my favorite. Fucking kidding me. Yeah, <laughs> it's that, that whole fucking movie. But I mean, we kind of grew up in the heyday of, of that stuff. Uh, you know, we we were spoiled. I mean, even the the cheesy stuff, or I don't know. It it's not just the triple A titles. The 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 giant studio budget with you. I'm talking about like the fly and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the thing and, and predator and terminator two and terminator. It's like, we had all that stuff, but then the lower budgets of, like you said, the pumpkin heads, the monster squads, the extra um, extra, uh, maybe not extra, <laughs> um, but uh, well, there was, there was one that I was just thinking about, but I mean, even like in throwaway stuff, that's not even horror, like looking at the skeletons and Raiders of the lost Ark or, mm-hmm or um, uh, poltergeist and you know, all that stuff. It's just there. It was the heyday Hellraiser, pinhead, you know, oh my Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger. It's like, it was just the oh, yeah. heyday the of the iconic horror character. Of, it you is. Know, the it's 80s. like, we can't, I, I honestly, cause like, I remember going with my friends to see Jeepers Creepers when it first came out. Like it, it was screening in our, like our, our, our small college town and really had no context for the movie outside of like, it's a horror movie because they weren't advertising it that much. But I'm like, let's go see this. And right. then you get into it and you see that thing. And it's like, holy shit. Yes, I would piss myself if I saw <laughs> that walking towards me or flying towards me. It's like, this is <laughs> this is amazing. And it's terrifying. And then you get to the end, which a lot of horror movies, they have that final scare. But usually it's after it's like, okay, everyone escaped and made it out. All right. The sun's come up. Oh, no, the monster's <laughs> still alive. It's like, no, the monster got his ass cut him up <laughs> and took his eyes and yeah. it's still out there. It's like, I was blown away by that ending. I was like, Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. It's, I mean, like you said, it's, 
it's hard to talk about in a positive sense because you just hate the fucking situation behind it. And, yeah. And when I found whole- that out, I was like, I, I think I found out after I bought Jeepers Creepers 2 because mm. someone like the whole powder situation for whatever reason came back up again. And I'm like, wait, he did what? Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, Jeepers Creepers 2 is also one. It's kind of like we, we've talked about like uh, at Pupil on the show and it's hard to watch that when you kind of know the gaze of the director there and then you yeah. watch Jeepers Creepers 2 and like Justin Long like comes back from you know like as a dream guy but he's like shirtless the whole time. Yeah. yeah no, it's it's it becomes and really apparent really the line of football players. Scene. Yeah. yeah when they're just Kissing. like sunning on the top of the bus we we were laughing it's like ha 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 and then yeah no you find out it's like oh sh- oh <laughs> yeah. that's why that scene is in there okay oh man i own it now and i i still own it on like the the regular um uh whatever regular dvds yeah the collector's edition back when everything got like a two disc collector's edition yeah yeah and it's like i haven't like upgraded them since just because i feel Weird about it, yeah. Yeah, weird about it. But actually, speaking of midday movies, Jeepers Creepers was on Sci-Fi Channel. Jeepers Creepers Two was on Sci-Fi Channel mm-hmm. yesterday. No shit, crazy. Yeah, I'm like, I, could, I could watch it on TV. Right. Well, well, that cut off abruptly. I guess Mister Zombie yes. had to go like right away. Uh, you know, he's heard the Athletic Greens read before. I get it. But yeah. you know what? Yeah. I think Let's it's it time to talk a little bit more about Athletic Greens, whether or not Mr. Zombie wants to stick around and listen to it or not. Yes. So Athletic Greens is a product that Scott and I both use every day. Who wants to take a tub full of vitamin supplements when they can get all their daily vitamin needs taken care of in one green glass of water? So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. I take a spoonful of Athletic Greens in a cup of water every morning, chug that sucker down, and feel energized and ready to fight the man for the rest of my day. Mm. Athletic Greens is a cheaper way to stay healthy, costing less than buying all the supplements you need on an a la carte basis, and it even comes with a full year's supply of vitamin D. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you that one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D that I mentioned before and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash kingcast to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Very well done, Eric. And I'm here to talk about this week's other sponsor, our friends over at Naughty Bits. This is the uh, adult toy mecca. (laughs) <laughs> that is we have recently gotten into bed with uh yeah. Ear, earmuffs for anybody listening with their children that'll be fine your sex toys may do the job but are they fun naughty bits are high quality beautifully designed sex toys but most of all they will make you smile downstairs and up with a wide selection of bedside products to get you off like the skull-shaped bonehead vibrator the yum bum ice cream cone butt plug i got one of those in the mail this week by the way how is or, it i haven't used it I mean, hmm. yet. 
or for <laughs> I haven't I haven't had call to use it yet. I haven't had, you know, uh, the I hope opportunity you share with us not... your experiences <laughs> with with a yum bum. I will say this: it seems pretty large. Um, it seems is sizable. It, is yes. it intimidating? It sounds intimidating. It is, and also it's shaped like an ice cream cone, <laughs> so it's like intimidating and delicious. Know. I get where you're going with this, but beautifully made. I'll tell you what: mm. packaging. The packaging is very discreet. Uh, the packaging of the product itself is just gorgeous. It really c- cannot say enough about the presentation here. But it's not just the Yum Bum ice cream cone butt plug. It's also the bad bitch, the motherfucker, the scrunicorn, the cumball machine, or the suck buddy. Naughty Bits puts the FU back in fun. Ask for them at your favorite stores and do check out the entire collection over at mynaughtybits.com. Once again, that's mynaughtybits.com. Very well. I think it's time to get back to the conversation. Now, I, there's no easy way to segue out of uh, that ad read into the show, but you know what? I'm going to queue up Mr. Zombie anyway. Do it. Going back to the horror icon thing, you know, I guess this is an interesting topic to cover while you're here because Gabriel is probably the closest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, not closest because we've had a couple of uh, some really good stuff. And the, the Annabelle doll has become iconic. The new version of Pennywise is obviously an iconic horror figure now. But uh, uh, Gabriel's up there in terms of like uh, comparing us to like the seventies and and eighties. Like our creature design is very lacking, you know, in, in mm-hmm. movies these days. And so uh, you got to at least be proud that you you know, you got one that's like made the cut, right? I am. I am very, I am honestly proud that like we have a cult hit that horror fans love. Like I can't describe to you. It's like, cause I grew up like, we all grew up with like horror movies that, you know, weren't box office smashes. Like, and I am in no way comparing myself to any of this, but like the thing bombed at the box office right? when it came out, like Pumpkinhead did not make money. It wasn't even released. Like in that many theaters when it initially came out, but look at it now, it has longevity. And so I certainly hope that Malignant has longevity and Malignant is like going to find some young person somewhere and scare the shit out of them and inspire them to like write their own horror. And to drive up to cliff edges and park the car. (laughs) I think we should talk a little bit about uh, Stephen mocked and you, you mentioned, uh, like imitating his his accent when you were when you were a kid, and that's something again that I feel is like lost. And I do kind of feel nostalgic for the days when people wouldn't be afraid to swing for the fences with their awful main accents, right? Oh my goodness, it, yes. And I was like, like, is that that North Atlantic thing that he was? Tr- was that what he was trying? He's absolutely trying to do that. And they shot in Maine, and a lot of the extras were you know were Mainers, and and so there is there was that period of time especially in King adaptations, which this falls right in. We're talking Pet Cemetery, uh, We're talking this, Dolores Claiborne, where they just were going, you know, swinging for the fences, going full main with everything. And now everybody's kind of abandoned that for like a neutral American accent. You know, none mm-hmm. of the kids in it sound like they're, they're from New England, right? But here, like, I love that that's a character choice. And the fact, the reason why the movie's so entertaining is that it it fall it, it embraces those kind of character choices. Um, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why it holds up. Is that something you you think that it's willing to go that that kind of the extra mile? I think it is because, like, even for newer generations, like you watch that and it's just like, what am I seeing right now? It's kind of thrilling in a way. 
Right. So like if you if you're used to you know like the current slate of movies, so like yeah, watch actors capital A act <laughs> and and try those accents and like the intensity that Mop brings to that role. Like after the um uh, his mistress like destroys his car <laughs> and he's like, you want to think real hard about this now? It's like <laughs> <laughs> it's like are you are you are you gonna eat her? Like what? Why are you staring at her? I mean, obviously, in the moment, it's like he's clearly upset. She's destroyed his car. But it's just like in everything that he does, like even when he's just like playing the boss, talking with the workers about it, it's like, did someone call break? Did you need I, to go like to 11 with that line? Like, <laughs> yes. I wonder why he. Stephen Mock never got bigger because like, I loved him in monster squad. He was the dad oh. in monster squad. And he's like, he's really good and big. He, he reminds me of kind of like, um, he could be like Roy Scheider's younger brother. You know what I mean? He's got yeah. that same kind of not afraid to go big, but also he's still kind of grounded and, and serious about it. He's not a bad actor. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder why he never kind of took off. You know, you want to know why I think he never took off. Hmm. Because I think he was competing for roles with Fred Ward. May he rest in peace. Mm, that's because, an interesting idea. That's a good. Because for the longest time, I would mistake those two. And like right. when I would remember Graveyard Shift, I'm like, wasn't that Fred Ward? And it's like, no, it wasn't Fred Ward. It was Stephen Mock. It's like, mm. oh, 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 yeah, yeah. But like you put those two dudes side by side, like they could be brothers in something. They've got John Bernthal has the same. Energy. Yeah. Oh yeah! Did you see the tweet? Um, uh, sadly, after Fred, it was announced that Fred Ward had passed. Like someone tweeted, uh, "Fred Ward walked so that John Bernthal could run." <laughs> no <laughs> shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's so like, oh shit! He's dead right. on accuracy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We talked about Graveyard Shift uh, very recently, just for the anniversary special we did. So we only talked about it for five minutes, but a big portion of this movie revolves around dudes doing gross jobs. Mm. Yeah. You know. And based on the experience that King had while working, you know, in a in a paper mill and, you know, an industrial laundry and stuff that that period in his life influenced a a few different things that he wrote, including the very unfortunate The Mangler. What's the worst job you've ever had or the most like. Disgusting, like unpleasant thing you had to do for a, a paycheck. The worst job. I would off the top of my head, just like immediately, um, I had to like shred checks for a bank. And it was like, after I'd moved out here, um, and I was working temp jobs. I don't even know if those are still a thing where like you, you would have to like sign up with a temp agency and that agency would like find you work. And sometimes it would just be for a day. Sometimes it would be like for a week or two. Uh, and this job was for like, three weeks so at the time i was like oh hell yeah because like i needed the work i was in between shows right and uh basically they're like it's really simple the bank is switching from like the the paper checks and they're like they're digitizing them essentially so they no longer need to keep them on like the physical checks uh on the premises and so all of the checks have been digitized need to be destroyed and they just need you to come in and do that. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I was told it's like, you have to, you know, wear a suit. Like you have to dress nice. And I'm like, why? Cause I'm not, <laughs> and they're like, it's still a bank. It's still a bank environment. So I had to like go out and like buy a blazer and stuff like this just to like be able to work this job. <laughs> to shred checks. And then they put me in like this empty cubicle away from everyone else. 
And it was me and like this like very large like 60 page shredder and I would have like a stack of old checks that I would just like send through the shredder and at a certain point it was like the uh, the dust from the shredder and like the paper and the ink and all that stuff started irritating my eyes and it started irritating my nose so then I had to like go get uh, goggles and uh, a mask <laughs> bank and attire yeah, like, and came back the next day. And I was pretty much, it's like, I hope no one noticed that I was wearing the same blazer and the same two <laughs> dress shirts for, like, a week straight or, like, three weeks straight. But, yeah, I would just, like, sit in this empty cubicle away from everyone else and uh, sit in this chair backwards, basically, and just lean over the shredder and just, like, feed it checks for eight hours a day for three Holy weeks. Christ, dude. And it was, it was hell. And I was trying to like, you know, I was trying to like get staffed on a show and I would have to like sometimes take breaks to like take calls from people. I didn't have representation really at this time. So it was like other writer people and other execs like trying to help me out. Um, But it was just like so dispiriting to like have to like sneak away to like take a call. And it's like, you didn't get staffed. And it's like, fuck, I still got to do this. (laughs) Um, But I will say oddly enough and this is probably not like it turned out to not be necessarily the greatest thing but all of these checks were wound with rubber bands and so i i started a rubber band ball and pretty much by the end of three weeks i had like a softball size maybe larger rubber band ball that i'm like this is mine and i'm taking it with me and so shortly thereafter i got uh i got into the warner brothers writers program and I got staffed on ABC's reboot of V. Mm-hmm. And when moving into the office, I took my rubber band ball with me. I was like, this is the trophy that I had for enduring like three weeks of <laughs> fucking shredding checks. And so I was playing with a rubber band ball in the room. And Jeff Bell, who was the showrunner at the time, was like walking around the table. And we were trying to think of something like for this episode. And Jeff just like picks up my rubber band ball. And it's like, well, what if there's like this little alien tech ball and there's <laughs> there's like this thing that they have to like That's- put it into. And it became like this technological thing that he wanted, like these characters have to like get this alien ball into this thing to like stop, to thwart something that ended up being a plot line that kind of went, I think it got thrown out at a certain point and just like kind of derailed us actually. And so the rubber band ball was forbidden from the room after that. Um, you, you know what I love about this story is that when you were initial, when you, when you said you were like just shredding these checks for eight hours at a time, I was, I was thinking like how dispiriting it must be where your entire job revolves around destruction of a thing. And it's mm-hmm. like a pointless thing. You could just rip them in half probably, or you could burn them or you could do whatever. But at the end of the day, you are, you have been hired to destroy a thing you know, over and over and over and over again. And that must like take some mental wear and tear. But in the process, you also found a way to create something (laughs) by making a rubber band ball, which (laughs) then led to the creation of something else on that show. Like that's, that's really interesting to me. You know, you, you fought against the, the, the oppression of just destroying all day uh, with rubber bands. Yeah, that was probably the worst. Well, that's better than, you know, a lot of other gross jobs that people could have. You <laughs> For know. sure. Yeah. You didn't have to handle any cadavers or, you know, dead no. animals or giant bats, for instance. Mm-hmm. So that's good. 
No, didn't well, maybe she did. She just didn't through. put tell it in the story. She didn't go oh, that's true. The story. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I don't want to get ahead of myself here. I mean, also like in talking about like the difference between the short story and the film, it's like, what is this? What does this mill need out back? A graveyard. Because yeah. it's called the graveyard shift, right? Even though it's like graveyard shift just means working late at night. It's like no, there needs to be an actual graveyard at the back <laughs> of this mill. Yep. And they they do like incorporate that in the movie to some like really bizarre like mat shots and yes. stuff. Some great like late eighties early nineties work before uh, they would just digitally comp everything in, into the background. Uh, and that's something that I also think we should should like acknowledge with this movie is that it is kind of in that on the cusp of the pre digital revolution. So it is one of the last like you know kind of lean and mean you know the film stock is kind of mm-hmm. grainy and has yeah. personality the the effects are all practical the the uh the, there's like digital mat or there's matte paintings not digital backdrops you know it is kind of that last era before direct to video kind of took over this this genre of um of b movie it's weirdly kind of a last man standing almost with this yeah. uh, uh this kind of movie yeah because like four Three or four years later, Jurassic Park would come out in 93 yeah. and just revolutionize computer effects. Yeah, and T2 was 91, yep. and this the abyss oh, had happened right, yeah. before this, and, so this is... An, unless we yeah. forget Lawnmower Man. <laughs> yes. Ah, <laughs> Lawnmower Man. A movie made from, like, computer screensavers. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Um, are, you, are you afraid of rats, bats, stuff like that, Akila? Uh... Not if they're not all like in mass staring at me. Um, <laughs> like if a rat ran through your room right now, would you freak out? Yes, because it would be sudden movement from something that is not my cat. <laughs> so I'd be like, what the fuck? But and then not it's like, because it's a rat. No, not because it's a rat. Because it's like, yeah, no, it's like another cat could somehow get in hmm. my house and like yeah. run through here. And I'd be like, what? What is going on? <laughs> um, no, I'm well, not like I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch one because I know they bite. <laughs> Um, right, but I'm not like I wouldn't jump on a table and and, and scream if I was around. I'd be like, "All right, I got it." Like get, a 1940s cartoon. Yes, it's like ah. Yeah. Uh, what uh, about what about bats? No, I mean there there is this one species of bat that is like apparently super docile, but they're huge. I've uh-huh. seen those. I've seen those pictures. They're terrifying. Yes, if I saw that, yes, I I would I would not enjoy that at all. Um, but bats in and of themselves. Nah, like the I the first and so far only time I've been to Austin, I would like to go back. Um, I was bummed that uh, we'd miss the uh, the there's a certain bridge yeah. that they yeah, have. The was Congress. South Congress, yeah, South Congress, yeah, bridge. the South Congress bridge. Like I waited for like an hour and a half, and then it's like, yep, nope, it's not happening because it was late October. Right? Um, oh yeah, no, they they were already they yeah. they'd gone to Mexico at that point. So yeah, I was just like, oh, like there were some of them were like, are you guys gonna you gonna move? You're not going to move? Okay. Uh, so I would like to go back and like go at like peak bat season just to <laughs> see that because I think it would be fascinating. Dude, it is really um, something to see. When I first moved down here, uh, I asked about it because I had heard about it before I moved to Austin. And everyone I talked to was kind of like, eh, it's like a touristy thing. It's just a bunch of bats, you know. And then I finally found someone who was like, oh, yeah, I'll go watch that shit with you. It's wild as hell. <laughs> and we went down there and um, it's like you i could i could use a million words to describe what it's like to see that many fucking bats just come out mm-hmm. of nowhere seemingly and 
fill the sky, but like it, it wouldn't, it couldn't possibly do justice to the actual sight of it. It's really a thing to see. Just yeah. bizarre. I hope to, I hope to see it for myself one day. Cause I can imagine that it's like, it's fucking awesome and just all inspiring to just watch them do what they do. It basically, is. Which is go get food and then come back. <laughs> and all of these bats are just like to the bats. They're basically it's like, all of these humans are watching us go to McDonald's. Right. Yeah. Why is that so entertaining for them? Low key, that's kind of like something that's funny about it too, because normally when people see a bat, they're like, ah, fucking bat. You know, and here you're seeing all the bats all at once and everyone's reacting like it's a fireworks display. Like, ooh, yeah. ah. Like it's it's a really case, surreal a thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. just it's it's kind of like just watching um uh, you know, like a flock of birds, you know, just kind of moving in unison. But the crazy thing about watching the bats launch in Austin is if you're on the bridge or you're under the bridge, there's like a, a hotel you can go like sit out, you know, the like outdoor seating mm-hmm. if you want and, and watch them uh, right, right there at the bank. Um, it's the sound because you hear like just millions of bats like chirping at the same time yeah. and, and all that. So it's like a whole sensory experience. It, it's pretty rad. Uh, I like it a lot. But if yeah, it's not no. rats or bats, uh, Kayla, what what little creature freaks you out? I have like probably uh, maybe a healthy fear. It's like it's it's uh, deep ocean, Ooh. deep ocean creatures. Like even just staring at them on my computer freak me the fuck out. Yep. Like the bottom of the ocean, wherever that may be, and what's down there? Oh hell no. Yeah. <laughs> that but you're, that you is would the never... thing that keeps me up at night. Fair, but you would never encounter one of those. In real life, I would not. So, hmm. What about spiders? Spiders and snakes, probably. Yeah, um, spiders is I'm, mine. Spiders. I've grown accustomed to spiders. Like I've become like growing up on a farm. The rule is like if the spider is in the house, it does. And then if it's outside, just leave it alone. And now I've become that person where it's like I will capture them and release, release. them. Yeah. outside. Uh, I even got my little like this spider grabber thing that I can make that's like a foot long. <laughs> is wait, it like wait, from wait. an infomercial? What does the spider uh, grabber look like? It's like it's um it's a handle uh that's got like a little trigger thing and then like it's like a foot and a half long and at yeah. the end of it are these like uh uh it's like broom handle stuff. It's like nylon. I'll, gotcha. I'll have to gotcha. like show you a photo on Twitter. But basically they clamp together and it's like this gentle way to like grab insects and like they get tangled up in, in the threads and then you just like drop them outside. Like once you release the trigger, it, the thing opens um, and you drop them out. But sometimes either the spider is too small or too wily and I'll have to like get the jar uh, and a piece of paper and, and get it in the jar and chuck it out. But like huh. me and snakes... Oh, hell no. You want to talk about, like, if a snake slithered in here right now, I would yeah. fucking scream my head off. Did you have a bad experience with a snake at one point? Or, so or just naturally? In, just naturally afraid. Like, growing up in Missouri, we had water moccasins, mm, which right are, like, one of the worst kinds. I think they <laughs> yeah. are venomous. Yeah, super exactly. yeah. Those don't fuck around. Um, so, yeah, I remember, like, uh, my grandmother's old house, uh, she, before my my uh, my dad and his brothers, like, upgraded her uh, uh, heater, it was like a wood, it was like a wood-burning stove, because, like, my grandmother was an old, old woman, uh, and so she had, like, a, a pile of firewood, and we were cleaning it out, because she no longer needed it, she got, like, you know, a gas heater, and I moved one of them, and, like, there's, like, this fat, fucking black snake 
that just kind of like hissed at me and luckily it didn't strike, but I just like dropped the thing and I recognized what it was immediately. And like, I ran to my dad and <laughs> for, for your uh, urban, urban listeners, it's like growing up in the country. Like as soon as I told my dad, there's a water moccasin, my dad got the shotgun and it's like, <laughs> he had to kill it. <laughs> so he's like, he couldn't have it running around on the property, but, but yeah, no, because I grew up around snakes that were dangerous, I just automatically assume it's like, I don't need to fuck with any of them. Yeah. That's probably a good rule of thumb. I don't think oh, you're, yeah. I don't think you're leading yourself wrong there. It's, it's just, just, it's also, it's like, if you've ever seen it, like snake movement is just so freaky. Yeah. I don't know. Snakes just don't freak me out. Rats. I, rats I'm mostly fine with cause they just seem like a big mouse to me. You know, I'm never going to go pick up a mouse. I'm never going to pick up a rat. So I don't feel like I've never seen one of those things in real life where it was coming at me. You know what I'm saying? They're always scurrying yeah. away. So what the fuck? You know, I'm not I'm not sweating that. Yeah. Uh, I remember and- I had my first like huge. I am New York rat encounter uh, on Luke Cage. I was in New York covering my episode, just walking out of the hotel. And there's like this rat just eating a piece of bread on his hind legs, like the size of a chihuahua. It's like, oh, and I crossed the street. <laughs> like, again, not screaming or anything. It's like, all right, I've seen a, a, a real life New York rat. It was wearing me. shoes. It was three feet tall. <laughs> Only in New York, baby. I think maybe we touched on this when we had Des Mulchin on the show uh, talking about graveyard shift, you know, whatever that was like a year and a half ago. Um, but it's not like I, rats don't freak me out, but there is something textural about the tail right mm-hmm. so uh, yes. that, that's where it gets freaky like if if i saw a rat i don't care if a rat was on me i'd you know like crawled on my leg i'd be oh that's just don't bite me or whatever i wouldn't have that like deep-seated internal fear of like just shock this thing's touching me but the the idea of like that skin on skin contact if like i was wearing shorts or something that that tail touched my that hairy weird segmented fleshy tail you know, touch yeah. me, then then I can like there's something primordial, some fear in the locked in the recesses of my mind about that. But like on the whole, you're right. It's just like people have mouse and or mice mouses. Mice? They have mice, mice and and mices. Uh, and and <laughs> feces. They have baby feces. Um they <laughs> have them as, as pets, you know? So yeah. it's yeah, the 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 more mammalian that they that they are, you know, the the more that they're just like little Furry animals is fine. But yeah, when they get fleshy, then it gets really weird. So, Kayla, then what I'm understanding based on what you're saying is that if you had to, for some reason, take on a job where you had to clear a basement of rats, Mm. you could probably do that. Yeah. Yeah. Get a jumpsuit. Get boots. Get your fire hose. Get gloves. you You would only get concerned like when the mutations came into it then. Yes. Okay. Like the second I turn around and see one of them is like hairless and blind, I'm gonna be like, <laughs> "What? What the hell fucking... happened yeah. to you?" And then you know, one that is the size of a Buick, pretty much. <laughs> I don't need the money <laughs> for that. No, <laughs> I would be like, honestly, I I love graveyard shift clearly, but I'm just like, how fast is that bat that he's just catching all of these people like this, like? No shit. And with I figure I could outrun a f- a, a two hundred pound bat. I think you could flying. indoors because he yeah because he can't fly. He's like in a, a contained space out in an open field. I'd be very concerned because that motherfucker yeah. could pick you up. You know you don't know. 
but like probably, in a could, basement. Can it even fly? Can it even fly? That is a question. That's a good if it, question. If it got outside, because does it know how to fly? Was it flying when it was a wee little huge bat? And then it just ate too many people, and it's like, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm gonna sit on my sofa and chill, loosen up my sweatpants. I don't think it showed up from somewhere else. I'm guessing it was born there. So you're probably yes. right that it wouldn't. At the very least, it wouldn't be good at flying. <laughs> which would also, <laughs> which like, how humiliating would that be? Like, you I know, mean, honestly, like it would be something out. to see how it runs in open space, like. I'm picturing, I'm picturing like the big red hairy thing from Looney Tunes with the two sneakers, <laughs> but with like useless wings dragging on the ground. Exactly. I was yeah, born just, this way because it was. It's using its its talons to like climb along the wall and stuff like that, but it doesn't seem fast. No, it seemed a little lazy, frankly. I think these other rats are have led victims to it and it's it's gotten a little too content here in its little corner of the sub basement. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cuz I, I mean like the sub of the sub basement wherever the uh, skeletons were. Yeah, yeah. How far down that was. Yeah, I mean it'd been it'd been eaten good in the neighborhood for like a couple decades. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else we would like to talk about in relation to graveyard shift? I just realized we never laid out the plot. <laughs> well, here at the end of things. It's, yeah. it's about a college boy who needs a job and he gets one at the mill. The It's the it's a fabric mill, right? Like yeah, sure. They're spinning wool and cotton into fabric. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because there's that loom sequence at the beginning. Or like, mm. is it a loom? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a loom. Yeah. And the guy, oh, Here's something we do need to talk about, though. And we did talk about this the last time Das Malchin was on the show, but it's one of the most memorable things uh, it, it, about Graveyard Shift, which is the um, rat death by slingshot and soda can, empty soda <laughs> right. can. Yeah. Um, what do you make of that, Akela? This seems <laughs> This seems like a terrible weapon. It does seem like a terrible weapon, but as a writer, I appreciate the payoff. Because in the short story, he's just using it, and then he doesn't really use it for anything in the short story. Because, spoiler alert, he and Warwick end up dying down there. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the movie, when they set it up, that that's, you know, he's good at, like, picking off rats with empty soda cans. And then Brad Dourif is just like, damn good shot! Like, <laughs> delivering the hell out of that line. It's like, okay. And then the end comes down to... How's he going to hit the red button? Oh, he's got to use his skills. <laughs> good it's thing like, he's okay. got that slingshot. Yeah, it's a good thing it was just happened to be on the floor. <laughs> right next to him. Because the hook didn't do anything. Fuck again, no. That just brings me back to the question. Is like the the bat was in the not the sub-sub basement, but the sub-basement. Dude made it back to the loom where he's loading the wool and then mm -hmm. suddenly the bat is there bursting through walls. It's like, how long did it take you? How fast are you? How did he even <laughs> squeeze up there? Honestly? Exactly. Cause he burst through like the side of the wall. So it's, it's yeah. It's the fucking Kool-Aid man of Stephen King adaptations. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gonna, oh yeah. Gonna eat you. <laughs> but also it's just like, did the, 
Bat have a personal vendetta? Because he wasn't really chasing anyone else. Mm. Like, the only time the Bat came up from his lair was, I guess, he heard that one rat screaming when the first mm. dude loaded it into <laughs> yeah. the Thrasher. Right. Yeah. And then he's like, I won't tolerate that in my house, so I'm going to push you into the Thrasher. I'm not even going to eat you. I'm just going to push you in. And then I'm going to crawl back to my lair and everyone else was like already down there i guess except the girl the mistress when she fell down the stairs she got eaten that's true hmm. that's but i'm just true. like to the bat like you've you've been eating a lot are you not full why do you feel the need to go after him well he, he encroached on on the bat's territory and that yeah. will not stand He's seen his face. The bat is like all of us during quarantine, just getting DoorDash every day, fucking sitting around, not doing anything. And then like things start opening up again and you try to leave the house and like your, your social life wings don't work. It's just like like my meal is getting away. Yeah. Half of my face is shaved. I'm wearing pajama pants and a dress shirt. Like I forgot how to be in public. You know, that's, that's what that rat is. (laughs) is doing there (laughs) um well i think there's like that entire corruption storyline that kind Mm -hmm. of nowhere for warwick yeah yeah i mean there's there's definitely clearly there just to establish that he's kind of a piece of shit and to pad it out and you know whatever else they had to do but i don't know this movie this is one of those movies where it kind of depends on what you bring to the table i think like if you're mm-hmm. open to it and you understand this is going to be kind of cheesy. It's uh, you know, a snapshot of the horror genre and particularly like the Stephen King adaptation subgenre at that time. And you just kind of go with it. It's it's like the Night Flyer in that way, I think, where you're like you're going to have a good time, but just give yourself over to the fucking thing. Have fun with it. Much like mm-hmm. Malignant, by the way. I think you could <laughs> I think you could be a real grump moose about uh, the the wild swings that that movie takes. But if you just give yourself over to it, you're going to have a blast. So shut the fuck up, you but, know? But there's one more thing I want to talk about. Yes. <laughs> that just popped into my head. Because when I was rewatching it, and I hadn't seen this movie probably since the early aughts, um, the guy that Carmichael, it's like the one black character who, by the way, does not die first. He dies, but he doesn't die first, at least. That's true. <laughs> um uh, replaces like the old the old white guy who goes down to like set up the lights in the basement that they've got to clean and he gets on the ladder and then like there's all these rats and then it's a cool shot because you see when he's looking away thinking like someone else is there you see the wing come out but what i want to know is like dude when you set up your ladder how did you not see <laughs> A giant bat <laughs> hanging from the ceiling because it's right next to him. Right. It Maybe is that right bat next like scooted, scooted be- over, scooted a little bit on the, the <laughs> laying in the cut, like fucking. Yes, yeah. I'm just gonna just gonna scooch in, slink, scooch in over here. <laughs> you just sauntered all uh, along the ceiling like uh, Chris Sarandon entering the club. Yes, exactly. I because I rewound that moment. I'm like, hold on, how did he not see that? It's right there. It is a giant f- semi-fleshy furry thing hanging out right next to the space where he wants to put up the light. But he did not. Poor guy. Maybe he didn't have the eyesight. I don't know. But I was just like, you've got to yeah. be kidding me. If I'm yeah. hiring someone to clean out the basement, 
in my mill. Uh, it's not going to be that guy. I just don't think he has attention to detail. Uh, and, exactly. you know, not aware of his surroundings, sort of oblivious. This is, this is a terrible, um, terrible job performance on that guy's part. It would have been one thing if he'd have, like turned on the light and then boom, there it was. But like he'd already lit the room. <laughs> he he bumps into it with the ladder. He's like, "Oh, sorry about that. I'm just trying yep. to trying to set this up. I'll be back in five. What you don't know is there was a scene that was cut where he was explaining that his peripheral vision uh, is shit. <laughs> yes. So can't see can't see a giant furry monster that is right next to me although that is pretty scary though like that whole concept because i think we've all had that that moment or we've seen videos of like people that are like they're standing next to snakes and they don't know it you know or there's Mm -hmm. an alligator in a pond or something and and like somebody like canoes right by it and you have to like pause the video and like oh my god like this deadly thing was right next to to this person there is something creepy about that. So I'll, I'll give him that, but I, I agree with you on e- execution. It just feels, <laughs> it feels a little, a little iffy there, but, yeah. uh, but in theory, that's a really cool setup for a, a horror scene. Agreed. It is. You just have to make it darker. I, I mean, it's then, alien, right? Like yeah. there's that, you know, and, and you, both aliens and alien, like at the end when Ripley's on the shuttle, you know, the escape yeah, pod the or whatever comes out. Yeah. Like, the alien was there and she was standing next to it for like 30 seconds before it moves, you know? But that's the brilliance of like H.R. Geiger and the guys who designed the ship because you think it's a pipe. Yeah, it looks like part of the ship, not not a a bat that's just hanging hanging out right blatantly (laughs) next to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a whole other discussion that, you know, if we wanted to make this a three hour show, we could talk about like the class angle on this. And that's a little uh, bit more prevalent in King's story than it is in the movie. Um, but to me, that feels like if you were going to remake this or you were tasked to adapt it, that's kind of the angle you should probably totally take this class warfare angle between the, the, uh, uh, abusive owners of this company and, and the conditions that they make their workers work in and, and are forced these people in this small town or this Vietnam vet in the movie, you know, yeah. is forced to, to, uh, to work in. Cause that's, he doesn't have any other choice, you know, that does, but, that does raise, that's a good point. And it raises a question like. Kayla, if you had to, with a gun to your head, you had to pitch a Graveyard Shift remake, uh, let's say immediately, like right now on the air, um, How? Uh, what do you think you would change to Graveyard Shift? How would you bring this into the brave year of our Lord 2022? Uh, definitely keep it as a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, small town is dying, and this is the absolute last place uh, anyone can get work. I would add a subplot of like maybe the workers are trying to unionize mm. because like Ooh, the person, nice. like the, the college boy like comes in and it's like, this is <laughs> bullshit. Like they can't run this place without you. And then that, you know, some way somehow fails and they're all punished with the great Ray. Shift. Bring some Norma Ray into the, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're all punished the for trying shift. to unionize by being put on the graveyard shift. Uh, and this rat monster, uh, is killing them off or bat monster is killing them off one by one. Right. And we for sure get John Bernthal to play Warwick. Oh yes, absolutely. A must. Whether he wants to or not. Would your (laughs) version of this allow the bat to ultimately escape? Would we get to see it attempt to spread Mm. those wings? I would actually, now that we've talked about it. Yes. Cause I think that's like one of the, to differentiate this between the short story and like the movie, like why are you remaking this is like to show cool new shit that we can do with this bat. Like imagine the bat getting out 
side and then crawling up the top the, the to the top of this mill which is like right. two, three fuck stories. yes and then you've got like the the full moon in the background and this bat is just like spreading its wings right. as our hero or someone is running through a fucking field and then uh-huh. the bat flaps it takes off you've got a second on like the dude is running or the woman is running is like running 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 running, running and then bam they're just snatched out of frame mm-hmm. i have a note what if <laughs> What if we get that that hero moment for the bat? You know, it's it's ascending the side of the mill. It gets onto the roof. It spreads its wings. Our heroes somewhere in the background running for their lives, right? Camera switches. Now we're with the heroes. We see it on the roof about to triumphantly take off and swoop down and get them. But then it takes off from the roof and immediately slams into the earth because it's never... <laughs> It's never uh, <laughs> flown before. And it's they like go one back. of those failed cat jump videos where it's like, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Like that would be so fucking great. And then, and then, and then the heroes have to come back and sort of like take it on on the ground before it, before it can learn to use those wings, you know? So, <laughs> or so they, no, they walk, they walk back and it's just broken and, and like slowly bleeding out on the ground, making just pathetic. Mewling noises. Mewling noises. They, they just kind of stand over it. it and if, yeah, they feel bad for it. Or Aww. even better, it just dies instantly. And it's like, Oh, that was, that was, that was okay. all right. That was, that <laughs> and was then easy. like smash cut to credits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We got another winner here, folks. Yet another KingCast exclusive. We have the <laughs> we have the the Graveyard Shift remake ready to go whenever Hollywood wants to come knocking. Well, this is usually the the point in the show, Kayla, where we allow our guests to, you know, tease whatever they're working on next. You have a, you have a number of interesting projects, some of which I know you can't talk about, but um, what would you what would you like to tell the the folks about? You got the floor. Uh, all right. Well, Star Trek Strange New Worlds is airing weekly on Paramount+. Plus. I just had uh, my first episode of the season co-written with Bill Walkoff. Uh, episode 103 premiered this week. And then my second episode, uh, written with the wonderful Onitra Johnson, uh, should be premiering, I think, June 23rd, if my math is correct. Uh, it's episode 8. Uh, and really, really, really excited uh, to see the fan reaction to that one. I've also got uh, Megan the movie I did with Atomic Monster and Blumhouse coming out uh, January of next year, Martin Luther King weekend. Also very excited about that one. I think Gerard Johnstone knocked it out of the park uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And then I'm praying to God that uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm praying to God that fantastic fest somehow gets Megan uh, at the end of this year. Yeah. I, I would. Yeah. Oh my you God! Can you come. can come you, in. You, yeah. You might see the bats at September. They might still be around. <laughs> we will personally take you to see the bats. Okay. Well, I'd like, <laughs> I haven't right, seen I it in years. I will hold you guys to that. Yes. <laughs> that would. Um, rule. The other thing I can talk about: uh, Nun Two has a director, oh, yeah. Michael Chavez, who directed uh, Conjuring Three: The Devil Made Me Do It, has been brought on. He is awesome. Uh, I cannot say anything else about that, but it's still happening. Um, and yeah, I got a couple of other things in the fire that uh, uh, hopefully I'll be able to talk about soon. Right on. Well, mm-hmm. we'll we'll save those for your next appearance. Um, oh, I do have one little question about Megan. Have you seen the fan cams for Megan? The fan cams? Yeah. Um, no. Fan cams are like a little video montage set to a song. Oh. Um, I have and- not. 
Oh my god, I'm gonna as soon as we're done here, I'm gonna send it to you on Twitter. Please uh, do. It's um, you know what? I'm not gonna spoil anything about it. I'll just send it. Well, to you. Well, you have to say something because the listeners are gonna want to know. No, do. Oh, we're worried about the listeners now. <laughs> oh, always. Um, okay, so it's sort of it's pitting Megan against Annabelle, and how glamorous Megan is, and how like low rent Annabelle is. It's it's fucking bizarre <laughs> and it's so goddamn funny um uh, anything i could say about it wouldn't you know capture the magic but gotcha uh, i yes. know the fan reaction to the poster and the initial design was wonderful mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like she looks fucking creepy it's like yeah she's supposed to she's a she's a robot right is that the thing yes she is a robot uh that has <laughs> there's AI. a three in, in her name of course she's a robot that's fair yeah that was me i was like i want to call her megan that was just the name that like stuck in my head and i'm like how do i make it make sense (laughs) uh and then yeah i talked to like a roboticist and like kind of came up with some stuff uh but yeah and then gerard was like what if we do this and i was like oh that's cool too um but yes she is an android fueled by ai uh who befriends uh a grieving little girl and then shit goes wrong after that and that's all i can say love it i i cannot fucking wait um well thank you uh so much for being here today this was a, this was a real pleasure and we hope to have you back sometime awesome i would love to many thanks to akela cooper i gotta say i always appreciate it when a guest brings in a ridiculous main accent uh, yes and <laughs> uh and uh, she did not disappoint so we got some gabriel throwing chairs talk we got a ridiculous main accent we talked about soda can slingshots you know i think we covered a lot of our, our graveyard shift bases on this one yeah and akela was just a delight to speak with uh definitely want to have her back on the show at some point uh maybe we can get her back on when when megan rolls around i am yes. i am very hyped to uh to see that motion picture when it arrives so Chances are that's not the last you've heard of Akela on the show. Hell yeah. Yeah, let's yeah, talk so. quickly about what's coming up for the KingCast. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and start, and we'll start with this Friday's Patreon bonus episode. This is something that Scott and I are literally going to be recording as soon as we we uh, wrap this outro up. Uh, we are doing our mailbag, and we haven't done one of these in a couple of months, and so we have some questions in there about our random Stephen King thoughts, books, movies, uh, some Shelbyville questions are in there. You know, we'll we'll be talking about a bunch of stuff that you, the listener, have asked us and sent via email or Patreon DM. Yeah, that's what we're doing on Patreon this Friday. Yeah, yeah the, the listenership was not shy about sending in the questions. I see we have quite a few to get through today. Um, so hopefully yours is in there if you if you submitted something. And uh, next week on the KingCast main feed, that'd be Wednesday, uh we don't know what we're doing we're just gonna be let's <laughs> gonna be honest with you the truth is folks that we burned through 20 guests recording that anniversary special <laughs> and uh you know um we are uh we don't have a lot banked right now so um so the the anniversary show project has come to its uh completion we are done very happy with how it turned out but now we are our new project is is getting the bank loaded with some episodes we can run so we can play around with the schedule a little bit. We've got one recording later this week, but we want to ensure that that goes through before we go uh, promoting it. So rest <laughs> assured, um, we'll have a fun guest and 
something Stephen King related to talk about next Wednesday. <laughs> that 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 is true. If if the guests that we have uh, lined up don't uh, fall through for whatever reason, scheduling or whatnot, uh, it'll be a really really fun, entertaining episode. Yes. Uh, and in the meantime, we have a good dozen, half dozen or so people that are committed to doing the show. It's just now the world's back open again and people are working and busy and it's hard to schedule. So uh, you'll have an episode of some form next week. We can guarantee you that. Yes. You may be Uh, finding out about it just about the same time we do. (laughs) But that's the fun of doing a a weekly podcast show, right? Yeah. Got to keep us on our toes. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no week off for the King cast. (laughs) Never. Never. And uh, yeah, and we'll be doing heading out to the Overlook Film Festival very soon uh, oh, yes. where we're doing right. our our uh, Mick Garris show. We're going to record that live at the Overlook Festival after a screening of celebrating the 30th anniversary of Sleepwalkers. So we hope to see some of y'all out there. Um, and we got some other stuff up, up our sleeves, but we'll tell you about that uh, as those things get closer. But n- look forward to many more live events this year. Indeed. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up and let's get on over to that mailbag, shall we? Yes. Adios, folks. All right. Bye, everybody. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>